And now we have a dedication. It's in the corner back by the woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by in the corner back by the woodpile. Today we've got another shot of songs from a 1980s roller rink dumpster, highlighting tracks from our favorite decade that either didn't get too much attention or no attention at all, or got a little action, but were maybe dismissed as one-hit wonders. I've asked a handful of friends to dig through the roller rink dumpsters of their memories for artists and songs that they either had a special affection for or had their own stories intersecting with. The latter is the case for this first segment. When I was traveling in Australia, there was a band called Pseudo Echo. Yeah, most people here would know because I covered a funky town. Won't you take me to a funky town? Won't you take me to a funky town? They were very popular in Australia and they had a, quite the fan following. And when I was traveling, I would look for places that they were performing and I would go and I would try to see them and I had that same sense of my heart palpitating because I'm seeing them on stage and At one point I called their studio because I was writing fiction at the time and I wanted more of an understanding of what it was like to be inside of a recording studio. So sometimes I would call studios and I would um, ask them questions, I would tell them I was a writer, or I would ask if I could come in for a tour. And at one point I was talking to a studio and I was asking questions, I was asking something about Pseudo Echo, and they said, oh hold on, Joe is here or whatever. And they put me on the phone with the lead singer of Pseudo Echo. <laughs> And, and he was, he didn't know that I was a, a, a babbling fan and right. I just did my best to kind of keep it together and uh -huh. ask him some questions about where did Pseudo Echo want to go in the future, mm. well, you know, they wanted to be a boys band and not just a, a band for girls and he was, mm. he was very polite and very kind and, and we wrapped up the conversation and I hung up the phone and I was like, oh my god, I was just talking to them. <laughs> But yeah, I talked my way into several studios in um, Australia and I believe in New Zealand and in London, even Abbey Road Studio. I got a oh, tour wow. of Abbey Road Studio. Yeah. I would tell them that I was writing a story and part of the story was set in a recording studio and I just wanted to come in and look around. And most of them were, were pretty cool. A couple weren't. One person would let me in and then someone else would be, why did you just let a fan into yeah. the studio? And they would just come and say, you have to leave. And uh, yeah. it's... They weren't polite about it, but I said, okay, and I left. I wasn't going to fight about it, but I was sort of like, why did you let me in if you're just going to ask me to leave? I'm not, I'm not hurting anything. I'm not drooling on anybody. Uh, just, just let me look around for a few minutes and yeah. I'll be on my way. So there's a uh, a band that you 
like that probably ended up in a 1980s roller rink dumpster? <laughs> well, I don't know about roller rink dumpsters because the bands I like weren't being played in any roller rinks. But Again, um, they, they, that's why, because <laughs> the records were in the dumpster. Well, if any of the records ever made to a roller rink, that would be pretty awesome. But <laughs> even if they got played once, I'd just love to see the floor I, clear. I see an opportunity here. Hey. Uh, <laughs> a, a punk rock a roller rink. That would be pretty damn cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh. So... Being a big punk rock fan, there's all kinds of music I like, and uh, I know what you talked about wanting to do is get a, a take on um, some obscure band that I like from the 80s mm -hmm. in the punk rock genre, which uh, I think I mentioned in an email, all punk rock bands in the 80s were obscure. <laughs> so I came up with one that w was obscure even in the 80s and still somewhat is, although they're not completely unknown. I picked the Lazy Cowgirls. This is a band that started in 81. They performed up until at least 2010. They may still get together and perform. Their singer does solo stuff now. So they've been around forever. They've had records out. Uh, they toured a lot and played. People kind of know who they are, but they've just never reached the uh, top echelons of punk or even mid middle. It's kind of amazing. They're so good, but they've always kind of been ignored and, and kind of disrespected or just really? no one's cared about them. Now, where are they from? Well, the two guys that formed it were from Indiana originally, but they didn't start the band until they moved to L.A. Mm -hmm. So they're one of the L.A. bands that were involved in all that in the 80s when the L.A. scene really took off. Where in Indiana are they from? I believe the town's called Vincennes. Is that how you pronounce it? Mm -hmm. Vincennes, yeah. Indiana? Yeah. yeah. yeah Down the road from Booneville. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah. But that was just the, the two main guys. Mm -hmm. Like I said, they didn't even start the band until they moved to L.A. and found the other, a couple other guys. And I think one of them actually was also from Indiana, who came later or something. Pat Todd and um, uh, Doug Phillips, who went by the name Dee Dee Weekday, that's an obvious stage name. Okay. Uh, but they, they're the ones that decided to go to L.A. and start this band. and. Um, and then, gosh, the other two guys, they found one guy, I think, like I said, was an Indiana transplant also, and then they found another guy who was local to L.A., and that was the band for pretty much throughout the 80s. Now, after the 80s, those, those two guys left, and it was a revolving door of the rhythm section mm -hmm. after that. How did you first discover them? I discovered them because I was, uh, when I was getting into punk rock and alternative music in the 80s myself, there was another friend of mine I went to high school with, and we would, back when they had a, a lot of like record stores in the mall. Now, we went into a Rivergate Mall, and there was, I think, Camelot Music or whatever, and we would always look through the import section, which a lot of those records weren't imports, but they were where they put all the independent or punk rock stuff uh -huh. or alternative music. And um, there were some compilation albums. There was an album called The Enigma Variations, and it had this cool kind of ink paint drawing of this punk chick kind of dancing or something, and... We looked on the back side, I hadn't heard of many of these bands, and we were, but we were just getting into it. And we look at it every time we came in, and my friend goes, I bet you'd love everything on there if you ever bought it. And I can't remember which of us finally bought the thing. And you know, I, I loved the whole thing. He, he was kind of kind of back and forth, but I had wider, a little wider taste of music. Do you remember how much it was? It was really cheap. That's one reason one of us bought it. It was like six ninety nine for a double LP. Wow. And that was cheap even back in the 80s. So. Oh. But anyway, so that was kind of my thing, saying, wow, Enigma Records has good bands. And then I found out there was an offshoot of Enigma called Restless Records. So later on, I found a cassette tape called The Restless Variations. And among the bands on there, there was a band called The Lazy Cowgirls. The song on there was called um, Rock of Gibraltar. Gibraltar. 
cowpunk take on punk. It wasn't really very punk, but I, I liked it enough where I was curious about it. It kind of spurred me to look at other things that they've done, other things. Well, turns out that only that first record sounded like that. Uh, everything else that the Lazy Cowgirls did, and apparently their live shows, even before that first record came out, they were just more wild and punk. I mean, they still had some country influence, but it was much more aggressive, fast, and kind of wild than that first record. Any song other than Rock and Gibraltar, I'd pull off their second album, which was the only other album they released in the 80s, and that album was called Tapping the Source. My favorite original song of theirs on there is called Can't You Do Anything Right. I love it because it's just, you know, it's just like he just sounds so angry singing it. It's like he's yelling so like, can't you do anything right? Can't you do anything right? You know, just like, yeah, it's kind of like you feel either about yourself or about somebody else uh -huh. sometimes. Uh, with me, I'm about myself mostly when I screw things up. And they also do a couple really cool covers on there. One is a song called Heartache by Jim Reeves. asked me, are you really happy now? I said, sure, I didn't love her anyhow, and somehow things aren't like they used to be. I look around and there's a heartache following me. There's another one by someone named Larry Williams, or at least performed by Larry Williams. I don't know mm -hmm. that, that he was the writer, um, but I never heard the original version. It's called Justine. To the Bible shock, I'm gonna have him do me up. Again, it's on that Lazy Cowgirl second record, and it's just really cool. It's, I did meet one of the members recently. He came to town. He's a friend of one of my friends, uh, a guy named Ryan, who's having a WrestleMania party tonight, if you're interested. <laughs> he knows him because uh, from Austin. Uh, apparently, they moved to Austin for a while. Guy was up visiting and uh, met him, and, and uh, we talked a little about it. And you know, me and Ryan both said, Man, you guys have been the most underrated band for forever. And he's like, yeah, because it's a lot of fun, and uh, yeah, but we you know, finally gave it up. He said, uh, after so many years, it was frustrating. We'd play with all these like, well-known bands, and they would tell us, that, man, you guys are incredible. Then we'd go read interviews with the later people and say, well, who are some bands that you know that, that you guys like that people ought to know about? They'd never mention us. Oh, no. <laughs> so I can see why well, that would be very frustrating. frustrating. Yeah. yeah. fact might be that um, you know that first record from Restless the reason they got the deal was they've been playing around LA for several years and one of the local LA kind of you know punk rock heroes a guy named, called named Chris D from other kind of obscure bands but better known at the time uh, the Flesh Eaters and Chris D and the Divine Horseman he said hey I want to produce you guys and get you guys to record I'll hook you up with Restless of course Maybe he had something to do with why the, you know, unfortunately, why the record doesn't really capture their, their spirit. Even though it's a good record, it just doesn't really capture them. Mm -hmm. But then after that, the next two records came out on Bomp Records, and then Bomp dropped them after that. And then, you know, mm -hmm. and through sympathy for the, with the, for the record industry, I mean, they've been on a lot of independent labels. So, so I know this goes beyond the primers of the 80s, but they continued in the oh, 90s. Yeah. They, they had a record out in 2010. 
So they've been around for a long time. And they're still rocking it, in your opinion? Uh, well, I don't think they're together anymore, but Todd, Pat Todd. Yeah, I mean, but they're still quality or still real good? I think their stuff stands up with any band I've ever heard. This is my opinion as to why they may never really got any bigger, even among the punk circle lists than they did. If you look at their pictures, all right, you know, punk rock is supposed to be open-minded and, you know, appearance doesn't matter. Supposedly, yeah. Supposedly. Well... <laughs> You tell me that punk rockers are going to give time to a, guy, a bald middle-aged guy singing. <laughs> that's the first thing that stood out. Exactly, a short bald middle-aged guy. Yeah. And, you know, and that's just, I mean, the music's great, but I really feel like, you know, people, even though it's supposed to not be focused on image or whatever, uh-huh. I really feel like, you know, in any form of music or entertainment, if people can't get past the way you, your, your visual image, they won't give you a lot of credit. And I, yeah. I think that probably has a lot to do with, you know, funny thing is the guy that, that kind of discovered him got him on the label, Chris D, he's the same way. He's a bald middle-aged guy. <laughs> I think if he shaved his head, that would probably help. Yeah. Would have helped better. Yeah, especially some of the photos I've seen where he kind of almost has a skullet thing going. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I've got some friends now in the band. I, mean, I mentioned the, my friend's wife, Stephanie, who plays in the Mystery Twins. She's also in a band with some other guys called the Exotic Ones locally, which I think is a great local mm-hmm. band, which does some stuff that's on the edge of, of punk. It's all a bunch of 40s and 50s, and I go to see their shows, I think their music's as good as anyone, but I really think that, you know, people go out to see shows are in their 20s, and you can catch a glimpse of them, you know, people just often will have their judgment painted, and they'll just like, Oh, these guys are pretty much old guys. They want right. to pay attention to the fact that they're, well, these guys have been making great music in various bands since the 80s, and they make better music than all these crappy right. bands out of there playing, they're in their 20s now. Yeah. Yeah. If you've listened to many of these podcasts, you know that I grew up in a small town in Indiana where, of course, there were no radio stations that played hip-hop yet. So me and my friends, having no idea what was going on nationally in that genre, would just generally buy rap compilations on cassette. In time, the track Roxanne Roxanne by UTFO showed up on some comps, but one day I found a whole tape called The Complete Story of Roxanne. On it was all these different versions of basically the same song, yet with different points of view on the girl in question, all by a bunch of different artists. My next guest recalls the phenomenon. Hi, I'm DJ Art, Nashville, hip-hop guru, underground basement DJ. The Roxanne thing, probably some of the earliest answer records in hip-hop. Inspired by Sting, uh, The Police, Roxanne, Roxanne. That was a 12-inch Produced by Full Force, the group that now produces the boy bands that are popular in pop music. A very hard beat, nice rhyming style. Nick's Master Ice, that was his name. He originated that scratch. A lot of other DJs copied that scratch for years. People still love that. Yes, that is really freezing. <laughs> Later, 
that was an answer record. Young people might know them now as beef. Say hip hop artists will say something bad about, I don't know, like a Jay-Z or something. And well, Jay-Z may answer back in a hip hop song, uh, you know, addressing that rapper and, you know, all his shortcomings. And the, so beef or answer records or however you want to put it. Okay, in those days, you know, a lot of times they had beefs, early beefs, answer records. You had, you know, Walking in the Rain by uh, Orange Juice Jones. My first impulse was to run up on you and do a Rambo. Whip out the jammy and flat blast both of you. But I ain't want to mess up this $3,700 Lynx coat. So instead, I chill. Then you had Thunder and Lightning, but people don't remember that. And was that the girl talking about? Yeah. You gonna pull no Rambo on me? Because no attitude this Jerry Curl Gigolo jerk is gonna put his hands on me. There were several answer records, but a lot of them, you know, people don't play now. You find them in the, in the dollar bins. Oh, I remember that, but you, uh -huh. you probably won't find it on a CD. It's more like a novelty. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. What I want to talk about, the answer record to Roxanne Roxanne was Roxanne Shantae, who was a little bit younger. She was a teen. And her name's not even Roxanne, right? No, no, it's Shantae, but uh -huh. now she's Dr. Shantae. But she took the name Roxanne. Well, yeah, she took the name Roxanne. Marley Moore put her out there, you know, she wasn't the first female rapper, but she was a pioneer and she was from a very early period. That had to have been about like 84, 85. So let's go back. Okay, so just for people who've never heard the Roxanne song, the original, UTFO, like in a nutshell, what were they talking about? They were talking about a girl and they rapping styles and you know, they were just trying to get the girl. <laughs> and so Roxanne Shantae, comes out with yeah answer record like she's Roxanne but see originally it wasn't supposed to be like that but she did it it was kind of like jumping on the bandwagon that's what they said at that time but let me tell you something else about the doctor too he ain't really cute and he ain't great he don't even know how to operate he came up to me with some crabbish rap but let me tell you these people are like regional people they didn't even really know each other when they made these records I think Kango and Roxanne Shantae finally met like just recently 30 years after yeah, the fact. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> so Roxanne Shantae had her record, and then UTFL came back with one. They put out a chick named The Real Roxanne. Hispanic girl, very pretty. But she kind of reminds you of Lisa Lisa and all those. Your nose is always runny. You look like Bugs Bunny. All your raps are old, ancient as a mummy. After a while, people got tired of the Roxanne records, and they just started making this records. One noted record I remember uh, it was made in, in Florida it was called The Parents of Roxanne by Gigolo Tony who was like one of the early godfathers of bass music. Nobody outside the South heard that record but I remember it. It was bumping at the time. Basically it was just saying you know we did this before y'all were even born. A UTFO came back with a record called uh, Roxanne 2. She's just a crab, calling her crab. It was like a little scratch. Calling her a crab. It was just like, Roxanne's a man. And that, that was my favorite one. They claimed that Roxanne was not even a woman, that she had been a <laughs> dude that went to prison and been converted. What? My man? His name? Roxanne? Walking around town with a twitch in his can? Nah, that's not my boy. I know I must be dreaming because I know my homeboy used to be a real human. So we used to do a dance called the prep and the dupe to Roxanne, Roxanne. When they break down that doom, 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 doom. That was uh, a time in my life, the high school dances, things like that. You know, we all come together, skating rink. I have a heart attack doing the prep now at 42 <laughs> years old. It's like a little shimmy where you, you just kick in and, and you punch out. And then it's kind of like the snake, but you just interlocking. 
it's a cool dance. I could actually do it, but it just hurts my heart when I when yeah. my heart beats fast every time I do it. Back then, I was kind of young, so I could I was a little bit more uh, flexible. Maybe people can look on the, on YouTube or something. And what was the other one? The Duke. The Duke. Now, what was that? Uh, the Duke was very similar to the Cabbage Patch. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, yeah, it's just a lot, a lot of them little dance, them regional dances. Okay. People probably long forget them. So the Duke, like, how, how did that look? Kind of describe it. I, I don't even remember. Okay, because <laughs> we all it was like a cowboy thing, or I don't even remember. Okay, actually, that song "Rapping Duke" that, yeah, that was kind of yeah. where it, it derived from. Oh yeah, da ha da ha da ha da ha da ha. And then the Cabbage Patch, what was that? It, it was a little dance uh, with the Cabbage Patch Kids. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was named after that. The song was made by the Wrecking Crew, and it was also done by a group called uh, the Gucci Crew. The Cabbage Patch. The Cabbage Patch. So there was a band in the 80s that you would like to champion. I still am a fan of. You know? They still exist. I think on some level, those guys play infrequently in the Northeast Ohio. Kent, specifically. Okay. And the name of the band? 156075. The Numbers Band. Those things you say. So the numbers band for short? The numbers band is kind of a, yeah, okay. A, okay. an approximation, yeah. And how did you discover them? Uh, just word of mouth. There was such a good live music scene, but there was a lot of interesting bands. Are you from Northern Ohio? I am. Okay, so you're yeah. a Buckeye, okay. So I would go to the Euclid Tavern and these guys would play like on a Tuesday night or something mm -hmm. and uh, it was just a, a funky urban kind of place. And, uh, you know, it was just electric. Like so many regional or local bands who you think are great, they had an incredible thing live that was harder to document in a, in a recorded Form. They did record, and I think they and did some work with some more prominent people. They just couldn't push it into a place where it was mass uh, right. acceptable or something. Yeah. And you described their sound as what? A blues band with David Byrne fronting the band. Okay. Nervous white guy fronting a blues band who could play, who could really, and I, and I don't mean like acting like a blues band, I mean they could really play, mm -hmm. you know, uh, authentically. What was some of your favorite songs that come to mind? Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's not a favorite song kind of situation. Mm -hmm. I, I can't say that it was song oriented, and I, and I listen to those songs and I go, would that be a hit song? It could be a song that got played on like 70s progressive radio when it was wide open, maybe, you know. And that's part of the deal. You talk about the 80s, it was when that whole thing changed. And, and all of a sudden it's corporate radio, and it's like all of a sudden you got bands that used to be doing wild 20-minute instrumental things are, are now doing, you know, David Foster 
pop yeah. you know, in L.A. Yes, so, and, uh, you know, and all of a sudden, yeah. you know, Aerosmith is, is doing songs that you you couldn't imagine them doing in the know, 70s. 10 years ago. Yeah, right. So. And you saw them live several times? Many times. Did you ever meet him or talk, chat with him? Uh, I knew Michael a little bit. I was in a band project with his brother, uh, which he was trying to do like a, a Genesis sort of project. It's summer fever. Summer fever. voice you're hearing now is one that may sound innocuous compared to the punk and metal bands that screeched rage and revolution in the 1980s, but this soft singer actually had a bit more defiant street cred than any band in the West could ever claim. Listening to Teresa Tang or Deng Lijuan's music was actually banned by the Chinese Communist Party, Dean Bourgeois. Still, as one Chinese friend told me, quote, during the day, China listened to Chairman Deng Xiaoping, but at night, China listened to Deng Lijun. My next guest reminisces about coming of age on the Chinese mainland and secretly listening to Little Deng in spite of the risk. Deng Lijun, she is famous singer from Taiwan. From 1980s, her music began to come to China, and a lot of young people they like her songs. Uh, on the records or the cassettes? Cassettes, and also by radio. And at that time, especially when I was in high school, if I want to listen to her song, I had to uh, listen it by radio uh, secretly. Why did it have to be a secret? Because according to the general ideas from the whole society, they think her song was bad song, was soft song, soft song. If you uh, listen to that kind of song too much, you will be get down, you will be destroyed, wow. you will be lost yourself by capitalism. So she was a capitalist dog, <laughs> as they said. Yes, uh, I yes. See. Weren't most of her songs about love? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's interesting they would associate love and capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes the students, if they want to listen to her song, they had to listen to it by radio after maybe 11 or 12 o'clock at night. So at that time, you can listen to the song clearly. Was it coming from Taiwan? Yeah, of course. The radio? Of oh. course, of course. Uh, because it was the very beginning of 1980s, very beginning. Religion's song, even today, I know a lot of people like my age, mm -hmm. they still like to 
uh, listen to her songs. There's a restaurant, maybe a block away from here, Yeah. that all her it's, pictures are on the wall and all you hear is her music. Yeah. yeah. Because the style is so different from the songs we heard before, right. oftenly. The songs before this time were like maybe like patriotic songs. Like the East is Red. Yeah. Revolutionary song. That kind of song. Not very exciting. After I listened to her song, I would have good feeling about my life. When you met your wife, yeah. did she also like? Yes. Okay, so you listen to it and it's, you feel very romantic? And she died young. Yeah, that? yeah, 40, maybe 43. Do you remember hearing about her death? Yes, oh. yes. I watched the, the news on, on TV oh. at, at that time. I, I assume you were very upset. Yeah, 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 it's true. Every time when I watched TV program about her, I always watched it carefully. My friend and I were in a tea shop in China while we were recording this segment. And the girl serving us, though she couldn't understand English, did perk up when she heard Deng Lijuan's name. So we asked her, could she sing one of her favorite songs by the artist? That's great. <laughs> I should add that Deng Lijun expressed public support for the students protesting at Tiananmen Square in 1989 by holding a concert in Hong Kong entitled Democratic Songs Dedicated to China. About a week later, the Big Deng, Chairman Deng Xiaoping, ordered soldiers in to quell the protest, resulting in the massacre of an unknown amount of unarmed civilians. Although the ban on Deng Lijun's music was lifted in the early 90s, and the singer was even invited by the Communist Party to the mainland, she never performed in China. And in 1995, little Deng died from an asthma attack. If you were to champion an 80s artist that didn't get a fair shake, who would that be? It would be Judson Spence. He did a song called Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. Got a little bit of play on like MTV, like really? in like 88, but I mean a little bit of airplay. He's a Christian artist here now. But is that, this music as good as it was then, you think? Or? I think it is. It wasn't power pop, it was just like, it was just fun 80s pop. And he had like kind of a soul edge to it. And it was so cool. 
And when I asked people about it, like, you remember Justin Spence? I'm like, who? I'm like, I may be the only person that bought that album. I have it on vinyl and I have it on cassette. Did they ever put it on CD? I don't know. I got, I got a little digital download on uh, iTunes though. Oh, okay. I know I wore that record out. It was so good. If you don't like it, that's not my problem. artist that I listened to around that time, Curtis Stike. But I never saw a miracle until baby I found you. I prayed I'd find my heaven and then all my prayers came true. Yeah. He's awesome. He's got like a Michael Bolton voice. And his he had Michael Bolton hair, didn't he? He did have Michael Bolton hair. <laughs> Don't talk about his hair. I think that's why I never gave him any... But he was such a good artist that his debut album was so good. Mm-hmm. Nobody gave him the time of day because, first of all, he had a Michael Bolton voice. He's a little skinny white guy with big hair with a big, huge voice. Uh-huh. Like, well, we have Michael Bolton. We don't need another one. Yeah. Like, no, he was more than a Michael Bolton. So he was better okay. than Yeah, I think he was. Okay. I think his voice was ten times better. And he played saxophone. That's almost like Kenny G and Michael Bolton put together. Exactly. Oh my goodness, that sounds like a, a match made in hell. <laughs> it, it's, it was amazing. Oh my God, the first time I heard I Wonder Why, it was like on adult contemporary radio. And I had to be like 12 or 13. And I was just like, who is this? My mom was like, I think it's Michael Bolton. I'm like, no, Michael Bolton's voice doesn't have that much soul. And then when I looked him up, I was like, Oh my God, who is this guy? So yeah, I have that cassette too at home and I have it on vinyl. So, cause I was one of those people that for the longest time, I bought everything on vinyl and then I would also buy it on cassette because I just knew vinyl was gonna last forever and cassettes were gonna go by the wayside. Yeah. And vinyl was so, so much cheaper then than it is now. Even though I still buy vinyl now, I try to buy used vinyl. The cassettes, the machine hated half exactly, the time. Exactly, exactly. But I still have my cassettes cause I love them. They have a special place in my heart and I will not get rid of them. But Curtis Steiger, his voice, he sounds like a wounded old black man trapped inside a little white guy's body. Tiger's voice is just like Teddy Pendergrass. They make you want to throw your panties at him. It's, 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 it's that kind of voice. It's that kind of voice. Oh, I, know, I know that that voice well. <laughs> See exactly. <laughs> Having thrown my panties. <laughs> Back to uh, J- Justin Spence. Justin Spence. Have you ever met him? No, but I've seen him at a couple of things at David Lipscomb when my brother was at school there mm-hmm. and some of their programs. Okay. Yeah, and he still has the most amazing voice. His wife is his songwriting partner now, and. The stuff that he does now, even though it's Christian oriented, is good enough. It's as good as the stuff he did in the 80s, which was pop oriented. A 
Well, that one tripped over into the 90s a bit, but we'll let her slide. Next, let's talk about a group that, though the records might have ended up ignored over here in the U.S., they were far from getting discarded in Japan. Uh, probably the biggest band in Japan of all time is X Japan, and they started in the 80s. It was the, it would have been the mid to late 80s. Big hair, they sang very similar stuff to what you would think from Poison, you know. Hair metal with a lot of power ballads and things like that. But they were amazing and they've reformed recently. Do they sing in English and Japanese? Both. They probably started the, the whole thing of really focusing on mixing Japanese and English and there's a lot of reasons for that. Are you the kind of the person that would listen to Poison? Oh, uh, yeah. And Warren. Okay, so you like that kind of music anyway? I do, actually. White Snake, yeah. mostly. I like very theatrical music. Mm -hmm. That's my attraction to Japanese music, is they're very theatrical. Uh, so you like prog rock, too? Sure, yeah. Now, X Japan sort of started what was called the Visual K movement in Japan, which is kind of a strange name for a musical genre. It wound up being, you know, more than just a look, it was also their sound. but. In Japan, the bands would become extremely flamboyant, and the things they would wear would, you know, were, were amazing sometimes. The thing is, these guys have been through a lot together. They broke up 1997 or so because their guitarist was found strangled. Oh my goodness. Murdered? Some people said he was killed himself. The band members said that he was doing one of their exercises because it, you, cut, you get a lot of neck problems when you're a guitarist. Mm. And they do a thing with a clothes hanger on a door and he was kind of pumped up with drugs, apparently. Yeah. Some people said suicide, some people said did someone murder him. The band members, of course, are just like it was an accident. It was a big deal. I mean, the whole country was in mourning. They actually, it was like John Lennon over there. Mm -hmm. They had his funeral televised, and wow. apparently some people killed themselves. And <laughs> the, the band went sort of separate ways. The singer ended up joining a cult and got brainwashed and, and then after 10 years they came back together and now they're doing new stuff so is he still in the cult that guy no okay. he left and admitted he was brainwashed okay glad he got out it was like a group for healing music yeah and he was depressed about Hide's death uh yeah. they were close everybody in the band was really close he was easy to brainwash at that time so anyway the reason there's an energy on the stage i guess is you can tell that they're carrying the burden of everything that happened with mm -hmm. them, and they're yeah, it was just it was just very raw. And they replaced the the guitarist. They have they got a guy named Sugizo who's from a band called Lunacy, and it's Lunacy like mm -hmm. moon on the uh, ocean, but it's Lunacy. It's, uh -huh. So they got him in there. Sugizo. 
You've seen him once, right? I have. It was the best concert I've ever been to. Um, what I've made it great? The energy on the stage. When I got there and we were waiting in line, we had all the, the ex Japan fans. And a lot of them are what the internet likes to call weeaboos. They're uh, people who really like Japanese culture or anime and things like that. So a lot of them were cosplaying. You know. So they just showed up. They showed up, of course they showed up. Just to hear a Japanese band? Or? Maybe, some of them might be actual fans. Anyway, uh, it was funny because there were also people there who were just metalheads who had happened to to hear clips and, and thought, hey, I like this band, they're very they, they're very technically good, they have good sound, you know, I'm interested. You know, a lot of people are used to liking world music but not experiencing like a, a special nerd culture to go with it. And so they were really surprised, and it was it was really funny seeing seeing them sort of like looking around, confused. Why are all these kids here dressed up like anime characters? You know, guy with like tattoos all over him, right. <laughs> just, just sort of like going, "What's going on? This is not how metal concerts usually look." But it was cool. It was you know everybody got to experience something something different than they're used to. So how did you how do you dress at these things? Normal. I just goes me. Okay. <laughs> okay. Just curious. <laughs> weekend, On these podcasts, we try to tip our hats to folks that are, are still rocking the 80s but doing new things. So we're going to talk about, instead of a band like we usually do, we talk about a film. So do you want to introduce the film? We're talking about Kung Fury. Right. I'm a cop. From the future. It's funny when I put it on my uh, top ten list of the last year's movies, a friend of mine kind of kind of uh, protested. Well, he said, "I don't know if you can count that as an official movie." It's like, well, what do you count as? It's not an episode of a TV series. It's yeah. uh, just because it well, didn't get a theatrical release and it's um, shorter than two hours. It's still you know, a feature yeah. that came out, so it counts. And he finally agreed that it did too. Oh, so. good. I'm so <laughs> glad we got his approval. I think what I know of the history of this film that it was a just a trailer, mm-hmm. and then they got a Kickstarter going for it, and then I don't think that raised as much money as they wanted. They wanted to do a whole two-hour thing, but they got enough to do a thirty-minute thing. So yeah, well, I think it's great for thirty minutes, and they, and one thing I was noticing is that you know it really looks like they've had actually put a lot of money into it, and they tried to make it look kind of cheap mm-hmm. and low budget. It, I think it costs probably costs a lot of money to make it look like that because you know you can tell when something really is cheap and it right. looks pretty professionally done. But yeah, it kind of reminds me of um, you know way back when uh, Quentin Tarantino did the uh, Planet Terror and uh, oh, yeah. Death Proof uh, double feature. He had all his fake trailers and mm-hmm. the one Machete became a real movie. And I know they were talking yeah. about maybe turning a few of the others into that. Right. Yeah. Back to what you say about money, it, it takes some money to find somebody to recreate a lot of like the VHS quality kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. The, the cartoon that looks like He-Man, uh, yeah. there's a bunch of stuff too. So I guess we should really quick t- talk about what it is, the, the plot I suppose, if there is one. Oh yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, if you're asking me what the plot is, uh, yeah, there is a plot. It's uh, very much an 80s, like almost like a kid superhero uh, movie. Now he must defeat the most evil Kung Fu master in the world, Adolf Hitler, AKA Kung Fuber. Hitler. He's the worst criminal of all time. I need to kill him. 
But you know what it reminds me of a lot? I don't know if you've seen ever read this comic or seen the cartoon, but I think they were inspired by Axe Cop. Axe Cop is a comic that's done by a, a guy and his little brother. His little brother basically writes it. He started writing when he was like four years old. And basically they would like, he'd come up with these characters and they played out. He took the, and would draw the comic basically exactly like as exactly how he said. So it came off as just ridiculous oh. as that, and it's hilarious, uh -huh. you know, and he, he draws it and puts it, makes it look real, and that's what it looks like, reminds me of. Right. So the plot, it's, you know, you got a guy who was struck by lightning and absorbed all these super kung fu powers, and uh, he's a cop, and he's a kung fu master, and he's invincible, and he's going back in time to fight Hitler. And I'll hack you back in time to Nazi Germany, just like a time machine. I keep wanting to say like, oh, it's a homage to this film or that film. But there's so many homages, it's, it's yeah. kind of ridiculous. But I think of The Warriors, I think of Miami Vice when I watched it. Um, well, it's very much reminds me mostly of video games. Uh, yeah. I think oh, that's, yeah. That's what, what was the one uh, beating up with all the Nazis? Was oh, it's like, um, like Street Fighter maybe? Street, yeah, Street yeah. Fighter. Yeah, that'd be one of many where it's kind uh -huh. of this... Uh, yeah, Mortal Kombat was another. Mortal Kombat, yeah, that's part of the one. Yeah, but I think Mortal Kombat was more of a 90s thing. Is it okay? Yeah. yeah. I think so. I I, I know that that movie Scott Pilgrim Saves the World tried to do the same thing, but to me that just came off as kind of hipster pretentious. Mm -hmm. But this comes off as really funny. So. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's the music is perfect. Computer technology, like you said, the video games, yeah. the, the the bad one-liners. Oh yeah, and the music. I love that they have a theme for every character when they're introduced. Oh, I didn't notice that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you look at when they show an introduction of someone like Triceratops or uh -huh. Barbariana uh -huh. or whatever, they'll do this little brief like da da, you know, like uh -huh. Barbariana or something like that. Uh -huh. They put their name on the screen. It's, uh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah. okay. Folks who check it out if they're still longing from the '80s and they've watched every 80s film there is. And how do they find this movie, Tim? Oh, well, we watched it on Netflix. Okay, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, said, I don't know about the time this thing comes out, it'll still be on there or not. It may be available on YouTube or something, I'm not sure. Anyway, so check it out, guys, and maybe they'll, if they are successful enough, I, they might make an, another one or, or something else. They've so. certainly done the 80s thing where they set up a, a, a cliffhanger at the end to do Oh, a, yeah, we don't know do what's going Yeah, so. we don't want to tell you, but Hitler may not be dead. Yeah, yeah. He recognized that symbol from somewhere. Somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right, time to put all the treasures we found in this episode in our shopping carts and roll on home. Be sure to check out other episodes of Songs from a 1980s Roller Rink Dumpster, in addition to our other 80s podcast, A Fluorescent Decade on a Hill. And I want to thank our guests who came out by the dumpster woodpile on this episode, including Alonka Dunan, Kat Taylor, DJ Art and Soul, Steve C., Moonlight, Kay Shorty Bell, and Joseph Austin. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at spuncounterguy. And if you'd like to see a list of former episodes of In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, go to spuncounterguy.com and click on the pictures of piles of wood with chairs in front. Be sure to download the new Podbean app to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone. And we are now on iTunes. Just do a search for Back by the Woodpile on the iTunes store and we should pop up. And a special thanks to thebrofisticate.com. <laughs>